After Jesus' seizure, after all, that's surely what it was. It wasn't really an arrest. He was seized. Jesus is made to stand trial. I'll, um, I'll admit to you that I've always been a bit of a sucker for courtroom dramas. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch a great deal of television as a child. There were two shows that were exceptions, though. This is late 70s. One was the original Batman series, you know, that one. Holy cow, bam, biff. And the other was Perry Mason. And I think it's probably because my mom had a crush on Raymond Burr, but that's another story. So these are the shows that I was allowed to watch, and it was tough for me to pick which one I liked more. I mean, I still love Batman, but I used to love Perry Mason. If you don't know it, if you're just too young, well, shame on you. But, you know, there's always this moment of soaring rhetoric of Perry Mason eliciting the right disclosure, the right confession from the guilty person or from a lying witness. One of my favorite novels is Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Every year I've got a couple little rituals, and one of them is to re-watch two Sidney Lumet films, one called The Verdict and the other called Twelve Angry Men, about jury deliberate. I really kind of like courtroom deliberate. I just, I like courtroom drama. It's wonderful. You get these moments of high drama. You get these powerful words. You get skewering testimony. Jesus's, however is not one of those trials, is it? Because what's probably most amazing about Jesus' trial isn't what happens, but what doesn't happen. It's Friday morning. You're all tired, and probably the last thing you feel like is a grammar lesson. I'm going to give you one anyway, but I'll try to make it fun. A sentence has to have two parts of speech in it, right, teachers? It needs to have a subject, and it needs to have a verb. And if the verb is a transitive verb, remember a transitive verb is a verb that does things to an object, instead of I thought, you know, I th- to think is to keep the action inside one's head. To weep is to keep the action to oneself. A transitive verb is a verb that communicates the action from the subject to the object, Right? So if there's a transitive verb, then the sentence needs three things in it. It needs a subject, it needs a verb, and it needs a object. What's kind of amazing about this long reading that we've just had is how few times Jesus is the subject of the verb. How few times Jesus is the one doing something, in other words. Happens five times, as a matter of fact. Let me read them to you. 2663, Jesus was silent. 2664, Jesus said, you have said so. 2711, Jesus stood. 2712, Jesus gave no answer. 2714, Jesus gave no answer. Five times, Jesus does a doing word. But I think you'll agree with me that all five times, he does the least amount of doing humanly possible. He was silent. He says something very brief. He stands. He gives no answer. He gives no answer. 
By contrast, Jesus is the object of the verb more than 27 times. In other words, other people doing things to him. From the beginning of chapter 26, when Judas hands Jesus over. I'm going to get you to remember that term. Judas hands Jesus over. It's a term that's usually translated betrayed, but it just means hand over, to put from one hand to another hand. From the beginning of chapter 26, where Judas hands Jesus over, Jesus is then spat upon, punched, slapped, accused, screamed at, mocked, stripped, led away. Everything that happens to Jesus is fairly nicely summarized at the beginning of chapter 27. When morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. There's that term again, handed him over. Again, we're left with the same feeling that many of us had about Jesus's conduct in the garden. He kind of does nothing. He's kind of like Harry Potter for the first three books. Everything's just kind of happening to him. He's not really doing anything himself. He's a hapless victim. He's a helpless pawn. Everything else is happening, and he's out of control. All around him, people are bustling and conspiring and maneuvering and plotting. And there in the middle of everything, Jesus stands inert, silent, almost motionless. This is no high courtroom drama. There are no compelling witnesses or corrupt judges or breathtakingly bold lawyers. There is a lot of motion, a lot of activity, and Jesus is still and silent through it all. This is no episode of Perry Mason. This is not a chapter from To Kill a Mockingbird, but there's another movie, believe it or not, that I think helps us think about what's happening here to Jesus. When we hear the name Alfred Hitchcock, we think about shower scenes and knives and horrible young men and terrible old lady wigs. But in 1956, Alfred Hitchcock directed his only movie based on real events. It's a movie called The Wrong Man. It's the story of a man named Manny Balestrero, played by Henry Fonda. He's wrongfully accused of armed robbery, he's arrested, and he's made to stand trial for a crime that he didn't commit. Now, in this movie, there are no dramatic courtroom scenes, there are no shocking revelations, there are no silver-tongued lawyers and semi-corrupt judges, there's no corrupt prison warden, and there are no breathtaking prison escapes. This isn't Shawshank Redemption. But what's really scary about the film isn't that there's some great conspiracy to get Manny Balestrero. There are no corrupt lawyers. There's no one turning a blind eye to incontrovertible evidence. The really shocking thing about this movie 
is that this criminal justice system, which has absolute control over Manny Balistrero's fate, his body, his life, in the end actually has no interest in him at all. There's this one remarkable scene. I'll get you to imagine it. We're used to courtroom scenes where the camera is kind of panning all over the courtroom. You get these wide shots of the people in the back and lawyers dueling it out and some pathetic-looking plaintiff or defendant there on the stand. There's a scene where the entire background of the court is blurred and the camera is tight on Manny Balistrero's gaunt, empty, worried, bewildered face. You can't hear clearly what the lawyers are saying. And in the end, it doesn't really matter because they're just talking about procedure. You can't hear the judge's interjections clearly. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's just legalese anyway. His fate is being determined by a process that doesn't care about him one bit. He then glances over at the jury sitting on the left side of the courtroom. And one of them is picking their teeth. Another is drifting off. Another is doodling on a pad while the lawyers are arguing about a piece of evidence. Another is doing long strings of bubblegum and then putting them back in their mouth. These are the people that are going to determine whether he goes to prison or not. And they couldn't care less about him. The camera then goes back to his bewildered face and then sinks down to show his hands beneath the table, clutching a crucifix and a rosary, praying. There's no conspiracy to get Manny Balistrero. There's no corrupt police chief concealing evidence that will let him off. Instead, Manny Balistrero is the victim of a system that simply has no interest in him at all. He was swallowed at one end when he was arrested, and now he's slowly but surely being chewed up, being devoured by this system until he is eventually excavated out the other side like a piece of human waste. There's something similar here in the gospel narratives about Jesus' trial. Jesus is seized. And then despite all of the sound and all the motion and all the conspiracies, there's also something kind of pathetic about the way that Jesus is simply handed on, handed on, handed on, handed on to the next person. Four times we are told Jesus is handed over. This word that we usually see as betrayed. Jesus is handed over by Judas. He is handed by the mob to the chief priests. He is handed over to the governor who then hands him over to be crucified. There's all of this plotting and motion conspiring and maneuvering around Jesus. It's hard not to think here of Psalm 1 and 2, isn't it? Remember Psalm 2 begins, 
Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot against the Lord and against his Messiah? By contrast, Jesus is like that tree from Psalm 1, isn't he? Who is planted in trust of his loving heavenly father. Jesus is here being consumed by disinterest, by fear, by neglect. This system is chewing him up and passing him on. Before the final act of handing over that Jesus will undergo, he is put up against another figure. You remember we talked about in the garden, Jesus refused to be the Messiah that everybody wanted him to be, the Messiah that everyone was expecting that he would be. So he's put up against another Messiah who better fits the bill, Barabbas. Now again, we've been taught very well, haven't we, to think about Barabbas as something like an ancient Jewish Jack the Ripper, a murderer let loose upon the streets. In fact, Barabbas is a rebel. He's something more like Robin Hood than Jack the Ripper. He's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. He is bitterly opposed to the Romans. He is an anti-Roman assassin. In other words, he's a hero. And he was slated later that day to be crucified alongside of two other rebels. That's what they're called. They're not robbers. They're not thieves. The Bible tells us quite clearly these are rebels. They're heroes. They're insurrectionists. They're with us in the fight against the Romans. Jesus is placed up against this other Messiah. Who do you want? Pilate says. Which Messiah do you claim to be your own? With one voice, they call out, give us Barabbas. This is our Messiah. You've got to ask yourself, what sort of Roman governor would let loose back into Jewish community? What sort of Roman governor who is tasked with the job of keeping rebellions down? What sort of governor would say, you can have your terrorist back? You can have your freedom fighter back. What sort of governor would do that apart from a governor that is completely disinterested with this entire ordeal, with this entire spectacle? He washes his hands, absolve himself less of responsibility than of concern. I just don't care. Take him. Do what you want. Jesus is swallowed at one end of a system. He is seized. He is being slowly but surely mangled, chewed up, passing through a system that has no interest in him, simply wants to dispose of him out the other side. And so we have Jesus handed over from one set of hands to another. And thus we have our final 
handing over that takes Jesus out of the trial, out of the court. So Pilate released Barabbas, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. 